when you hear the word worship, what comes to mind? Maybe a place of worship, like this here, like the church. Maybe a, a person of worship, like a, like a worship leader, or uh, an order of worship. A list of songs to be, to be sung on Sunday mornings. Maybe it's a, a time of worship, a, a time that's been set aside for corporate worship. That's what you think of when you think about worship. Maybe even a particular style of worship. Some, when they're asked about worship, they, they begin to go into why they prefer a, a more contemporary style of worship or maybe you like a more traditional type of worship. Many of us, we, we have these certain things that, that, that come to mind when we think about worship. But though that's the case, though, though all of us think and talk about worship and, and uh, as, as believers we talk about it, we feel as if it's important Though we have strong opinions on how it should look and how it should be done. Too few of us have been equipped from God's Word on what He has to say about worship. And He has quite a bit to say. This morning we are continuing our sermon series entitled Discovering Fellowship. We're, we're going to go back to Hebrews. I assured you of that last week. We've still got 11, 12, and 13 to finish it up and have some more books to tackle this year. But I thought it'd be good at the beginning of the new year to take five weeks to talk a little bit about our mission statement that we're calling Discovering Fellowship. And you'll remember from last week that I shared with you that the mission for all churches, for all believers given by Christ, is that we are to be making disciples. And I also explained to you last week that that is what we are all about here. It says that in our mission statement. Let's take a look at our mission statement up on the screen once again. And I'm going I'm to read it for us and, and you can follow along. Next slide. This is in your bulletin, by the way, as well. It says this, Fellowship Bible Church exists for the purpose of making disciples by escorting people to Christ, establishing people in truth, and equipping people for ministry. We want to see people who don't know Christ come to know Him, to forsake their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. We want to see that happen, but, but we also want to see them grow in their faith. We want to pour in to people with the Word and see them established in truth and move forward in their faith and grow in godliness. And we also want to see them equipped for ministry so that they can then go out and escort others to Christ, establish them in truth, and equip them for ministry. This is what we're all about. This is the mission that, that Christ left for us. Last week we looked at Ephesians 4, and we talked about the church is the main place where discipleship happens. It, it happens elsewhere, but it, but it is especially to be happening here. The church is the place where you come to learn about Christ, to grow in your knowledge of God. It's the place where, where you get equipped to use the gifts God has given you to do ministry. In other words, 
Congregational life is very important because, because it's the place where you get ready, where you get prepared to be who God has called for you to be in the home and in the workplace and in your, your communities. Paul is very clear on this point. And he's clear that the role of the pastor teacher, my role, is to use the gifts that God has given me to equip believers to use their gifts for the purpose of ministry so that the church can be built up and so that God's kingdom can advance. That's what we're about. That's what God's about. That is the mission for His church. Well, this morning... For the next few weeks, I want to share with you how the ministries of this church can help us accomplish these things, escorting, establishing, and equipping. I'm going to show you how the ministries that we have in place, they are put in place for this purpose. Everything we do here at this church, we filter it through this mission statement. How does this help us escort people to Christ, establish them in truth? and equip them for ministry. This morning we're going to talk about what we do in here Sunday after Sunday in this place. We're going to talk about worship and we're going to especially talk about corporate worship as well. One thing I want to see this next year is for those of you who are, are members of this church, regular attenders looking to get more connected. I, I want to I see you here each and every Sunday. We don't keep rolling. We won't hound you if you miss a Sunday. But, but I want to see you here on a regular basis and involved in the Sunday morning worship, in lifting up your voices and your hearts in praise to the one true and living God alongside God's people, in opening God's word, drawing close to him to hear from him through his word so you can go out and be who God has called you to be in your homes and in the workplace and in the schools and in your, your communities. That's what I want to see happen this next year. And I say that not just so that every chair will be filled and so that people will look at us and go, oh, look at how impressive they are. That's not the reason that I want to see that happen. I want you to come because what takes place here on Sunday morning is a vital part of your growth in godliness. It is. God intended it to be that. That's why we here at Fellowship are all about worship. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24 this morning. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to assume, like I said already, that you value, many of you believers in here, you value worship. You believe it to be important. I believe many of you do. If I were to ask you outright, do you value worship? I'm sure that, that many of you, most of you in here would say, yes, I do. And, and you probably have some, some strong opinions, some of you, on, on when and how and where and how often worship should be done. So I'm not going to try to convince you this morning from God's word that worship is important. I'm going to assume that, that you already believe this. But what I want to do this morning is I want to show you from God's word what worship is and the right and wrong way to view worship according to God's word. Remember last week we talked about the role of the pastor teacher to equip the saints 
for the work of ministry. This morning, my prayer for me as I, as I preach God's Word is through the power of the Spirit that I would equip you, that God would use me to equip you to have a better understanding of worship and how to be prepared for worship. Here's the first principle you need to know to worship God correctly. Number one, to worship God correctly, we have to be equipped appropriately. We have to be equipped to worship. Let's go to John 4. It's a familiar story. Many of y'all know it. Story of Jesus and the woman at the well. And in this text, we are told in the first few verses that Jesus went through Samaria to a town called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, who was tired and thirsty, sat down near this well and we're told that it was about the sixth hour. Let's pick up reading in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So let's stop there for just a minute. Notice what we have here. Jesus is sitting by a well. This Samaritan woman comes up. Jesus strikes up a conversation with her and says, give me a drink, which surprises the woman. She is shocked, and here's why. Context will help us here. Number one, because he's a man and she's a woman. And that day, in this culture, it was not customary for men and women to talk to each other out in public. And so just a, a stranger, a man, and a, and, and a woman who did not know each other talking in this way would not be considered appropriate. So that's the first reason it's shocking. The second reason she was shocked is because Jesus is a Jew and she is a Samaritan. And these groups did not care for one another in the least bit. I mean, there was such intense hatred between the two groups that the Jewish people would often take the long way on a journey just to bypass Sychar to avoid the Samaritans. Can you imagine having so much hatred for people in a particular state that instead of driving through it to get to your destination, you go all the way around it? I mean, that is some serious hatred, right? Pretty intense. So it shocks her for this reason. Third reason is because he asked her for a drink. Now let me tell you why this would be shocking. When Jesus says, give me a drink, we learn later, Jesus doesn't have anything that holds water, okay? So Jesus is telling her, can I have a drink from your cup, all right? A Jewish person, if he would have witnessed Jesus in this day <clears throat> drinking the cup of a Samaritan woman, they would have considered Jesus ceremonially unclean. So this woman is thinking to herself, what on earth is going on? I have this Jewish man talking to me, a Samaritan woman, asking me for a drink of water from my cup. That would have been shocking for her and for anyone else looking on. And then to make things even more shocking, we find out later in this text, this is not just any woman. She is an adulterous woman. 
Some believe that's the reason why she was there at noon. In that time, in that day, context helps again, women normally went to the well in the morning or in the evening. So she is showing, being there at noon, she is a social outcast and immoral person by going at noon when no one is there, and we're going to learn why in just a moment. So the fact that Jesus is talking to her, <clears throat> initiating conversation with her is a big deal, very shocking. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you, he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, so let's see what's going on here. Jesus asked this girl for a drink. And, and the woman says, I, I can't believe you are asking me for a drink. And Jesus responds with, he said, if you really knew me, you wouldn't have wasted time and, and waited for, for me to ask you for a drink. You would have come and asked me for a drink. And then she's very confused, thinking, okay, but you don't have anything to draw water with. Why would I come and ask for a drink from you when you're sitting there with nothing that holds water. But what's Jesus talking about here? Not talking about physical water, is he? No, he's talking about something bigger, something greater than that. He's talking about spiritual water, right? And he, he says here, the water you're drinking, though it is good water, it does not bring satisfaction that lasts after drinking the water you have you're going to be thirsty again you're going to have to come back here for more jesus says the water i'm talking about it satisfies it doesn't quench your thirst for an hour and then you get thirsty again no the water jesus is talking about is a spiritual water and the thirst a spiritual thirst christ is better amen he provides something that satisfies but we know upon reading this, this woman hadn't caught on yet. She's still thinking literally, and she's a bit confused. And Jesus knows this. He has to equip her with the truth before she can become a true worshiper of him. Before she can come to salvation, before she can worship God, she has some things she needs to understand. For her to drink the water Jesus is talking about, Jesus has to equip her to drink. Here's the thing, like the woman at the well, we all have this deep longing to be happy long term. We do, we want to be happy, we want to be satisfied, and we are going about it in some wild and crazy ways, but going at it with all our might. The problem is, we don't know how to be. We don't. 
We try all kinds of ways to be satisfied apart from God, and we come up short time and time again. That's what's going on here with this woman. She has sought to quench her own thirst in a variety of wicked ways apart from God, and Jesus is letting her know there is only one way for her to experience happiness long term. There is only one way for her thirst to be quenched, and that is in and through a right relationship with the one true and living God through faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus is is telling this woman, sharing with this woman about salvation, equipping her to be a worshiper of God. So to worship God correctly, we, we have to be equipped, right? Equipped to worship appropriately. Number two, to worship God correctly, we have to know ourselves thoroughly. We got to grow in our knowledge of God so we can grow in the knowledge of who we are. We have to have a, a correct view of ourselves so that we can worship God and approach Him in the proper way. If we're going to worship God in a way that honors Him, we have to know ourselves thoroughly. There are a couple of key truths that, that we learn here about ourselves and about God's dealing with us in this story that, that are essential for us to understand in order for us to worship God in a way that honors Him. Number one, we've got to realize that God loves unconditionally. God shows unmerited, undeserved favor toward those whom He chooses. It's amazing. It's very important that we understand that. The favor that Christ is showing the Samaritan woman is not deserved. We're going to see that in just a minute. He loves unconditionally. It's not by coincidence that Jesus and this woman at the well are having this encounter. It's not by coincidence that she's there by herself at noon. It's not by coincidence that Jesus is there without his disciples and is speaking to her. It's not by coincidence that this woman happens to be a Samaritan woman. And it's not by coincidence that this woman happens to be an adulterer. God knows what he's doing here. Something significant is taking place at the well. Of all the people Jesus could have sat with on that day and revealed himself to, he chooses this adulterous Samaritan woman. What is John trying to highlight for us by sharing with us this story? He is showing us that God has a heart for people, that he loves unconditionally, that he is a merciful and gracious God, especially to an adulterous Samaritan woman. He doesn't love what she's doing, but he wants her. <clears throat> and he wants to be known by her. He wants to be worshipped by her. If we're going to worship God, it's essential that we have this understanding. That God loves unconditionally. That his, his favor that's been shown us, believers, is unmerited, undeserved. It's important for us to understand that. There's a second truth that we see here that we need to understand as well that's a bit more sobering, but equally important. Second key truth that we have to understand is we have sinned against Him. 
God loves unconditionally, but we have sinned against Him, and we should know that God is a holy and righteous God who takes sin seriously. Sin has to be addressed. Sin has to be dealt with. If you're going to worship God in the right way, in a way that honors Him, you must understand that you are sinners before a holy and righteous God. Not popular today to talk about, but inescapable in Scripture. There's hardly a page you can turn to in Scripture where you won't find sinners doing sinful things. It's all throughout. Look at John 4, 16 through 19. Jesus said to the woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. He's showing her her sin. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, you're wrong. Is that what she said? No. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. That means what Jesus just said about her is absolutely true. He's exposed her. She says, you're a prophet. Jesus here, he's revealing he's more than just some random somebody, right? By showing that he knows all about this woman from Samaria. He says, go call your husband. She responds with, don't have a husband. To which Jesus responds, I knew that. You're right. You don't. You've actually had five husbands in your past. And the man you're presently with is not your husband at all. Now, little is lost in the translation of some of your Bibles, but in the original language, it's clear Jesus is making the point that this woman at present is in an adulterous relationship. She is an adulterer. Now, put yourself in this woman's sandals for a moment. She's just having a casual conversation with Jesus about water, and out of nowhere, he exposes her sin. Her deepest, darkest secret, her checkered past, her dark history, her present sinful state. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. He he doesn't leave her in this helpless and hopeless state, right? He addresses her sin. He doesn't ever brush over sin. Don't believe anybody who tells you that he does. He addresses it, but he doesn't leave her without a chance of rescue, does he? He doesn't say, you lousy old sinner, take his water and move on. He doesn't. He talks about her sin. He addresses her sin. She knew she was guilty just by his mention of it. He knew it now. Uh, She knew it now. She knew that he knew it as well, which is why she says, you're a prophet. The reality of sin, my sin, your sin, sin in our lives and world is one of the most obvious provable doctrines found in the Bible. And it's easy to observe in our life. Just look at your kiddos and your grandkids. Seriously. Little sinners in need of saving. They are. That's why they'll hurt one another for a toy so they can have it because it's mine while leaving the other one crying. My girls have done that. I guarantee you they've never seen me do that to Leslie or Leslie do that to me. Y'all know Leslie. She's feisty. But, yeah, no, they, they haven't observed that from me. We're going to delete that from the, she's not in the service. Get myself in trouble. I'm going to be doing the editing. Uh, but no, so 
that's not observed behavior. That's, that's ingrained. It's the sin condition, right? Turn on the news, pick up the paper, go to the park, a restaurant, where, wherever you go, you're going to see sinners and sinful behavior. Sin is everywhere. Scripture is clear that our lives are, are tainted and marred with sin so much so that, that we're not even able to truly see how, how sinful we really are. Not only in our actions, but in our thoughts. Not only in our, our thoughts, but in our attitudes. Not only in our attitudes, but our motivations. Why we do the things that we do, even when we do the best of things, pride rears its ugly head. So we've been so tainted by sin that when we're doing the greatest of things, we do it for the wrong reasons. It's not a good picture, is it? We're seriously flawed. Now, why is it important for us to understand this? Let's go back to the story of the woman at the well. Jesus speaks of her sin. The reason why he speaks to her of her sin is because he wants her to come face to face with the fact that she is in need of rescue. She is in need of a Savior. He's told her about the living water. Now he's going to make her thirst for it. And believers, when you share Christ, you have to address the sin problem. You have to expose that. You have to show they're sinners in need of saving. We learned that from Jesus. Once heard someone say that God is in the business of, of putting people down into holes so deep they can't possibly get out without his help. That's, that's the work that, that he does, and we just have to realize that's where we are and see our need of him for you to worship God in in the right way for you to for you to live a life that God has called you to live as a worshiper of him you have to first come to terms with the fact that you are sinful and you're in need of rescue from Jesus you have to you have to have the blindfold removed you have to have your heart changed your you you have to be awakened to faith you have to realize that you're in a God-sized hole that only God can pull you out of it's so important for us to, to know this, one, to be saved, but believers for us to continually be reminded of who we are and our inability and that we are but dust and we are in need of the Creator for everything. That's how you live a life of worship. You have to realize that. So in order for us to worship God in the right way, it is essential that we come to terms with who we truly are in our desperate need of God, our desperate need of rescue and our desperate need of His grace to live the life He's called us to live. We have to know ourselves thoroughly. Point number three, to worship God correctly, we have to worship God privately. Now, I've changed, your point looks a little bit different. I actually changed that point this morning. I didn't really like it, so I changed it. So if you just change it. To worship correctly, we have to worship God privately. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, now clearly, like I said earlier, this, sin, this woman's sin has been exposed by Jesus. So what does she do? She decides to change the subject. She feels as if she's speaking to a man of God, so she gets him involved in a theological argument. That way, she can talk about something else besides her checkered past and her current relationship. 
We often do this as well, don't we? I know my girls change the subject when they're getting in trouble. And this is a good topic to accomplish our purpose. You see, up to this point, the Samaritans believed with all their heart that the place that God wanted them to worship was at a certain location in Samaria. And the Jews felt equally passionate about the fact that God wanted to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. And that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Remember, the kingdom was divided. The, the Jewish kingdom, the Israelites were divided. Ten tribes went up north, settled in Samaria, and the tribes of Benjamin and Judah settled in the south in Jerusalem, and they worshipped in Jerusalem, and the ten tribes up north, they set up a new place of worship in Samaria, which was a big no-no we'll talk about in just a minute. Jesus is going to correct that. But that's the reason these two groups did not like one another. They were opposed to one another religiously and had, had animosity and hatred toward each other. So this woman is bringing up a very significant debate about the true place of worship, I believe, as a smokescreen to hide behind. But you know what? Jesus doesn't allow us to hide behind smokescreens, does he? He doesn't. Notice how he responds. Jesus answers her question in verse 21. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus answers this woman's question. He provides an answer, but, but He also explains to her that she's asked the wrong question. The question is not where to worship. That's not the real issue. The important question to ask and answer is how are we to worship and who? How are we to worship and who? And Jesus goes on to answer these questions so that this woman can be properly equipped to understand and participate in worship. Jesus says that true worshipers worship in spirit. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit. Now, what is the point that Jesus is trying to make here when he says God is spirit? He's saying here, the God we are to worship is not bound by space and time. He's not limited to one place in the world at, at a time. <clears throat> He's not just in Jerusalem at one point, in Samaria at another point. He has both places and, and more. God is fully present everywhere, right? There's no place where you can go and not be in the full presence of God because God is spirit. And because he's everywhere, he rightly demands to be worshipped all the time, everywhere, anywhere you go, because God is spirit. In, in Exodus, when he says, there shall be no other gods before me, where is God? We just said, right? Everywhere. So what's he saying? No other gods before me. That means in my presence. If its presence is everywhere, that means there to be no other gods anywhere. Because God is everywhere. Fully present. 
Jesus wanted this woman to understand that God is not just in a temple in Jerusalem, not just in a temple in Samaria. Jesus wanted her to know that God is present with her wherever she goes. When she is all alone, when she returns home to spend time with someone else's husband, he's there. He is everywhere and demands worship from everyone, everywhere, all the time, day in, day out, week in, week out. You're not just to be worshiping him when you walk into this place and sit down here on Sunday morning. It's when you leave this place. It's when you're in the workplace. It's when you're in your car, in your home, by yourself, all the time, everywhere. Now, there are times when we gather together corporately for worship, and that time is now on Sunday mornings, right? But really, this time is just to be an overflow of a week's worth of worship. That's what this time is to be all about. Our lives are really to be one big worship service before the Lord. Jesus wanted this woman to understand this. He wanted to equip her with this truth, and we need to realize it as well. Last point about worship. Not only are we to worship God privately, but to worship God correctly, we have to be equipped corporately as well. Look at John 4.24 again. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus makes a point here. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit. Worship is not simply the words of our mouth, the outward acts of our hands and feet. True God-honoring worship, get this important, stems from a heart that is right with God. We have to be transformed from the inside out. If our hearts aren't right, it doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you do. There is no connection, no relationship, only separation apart from Christ doesn't matter. You have, to, you have to give your life up and over to Christ for you to be a true worshiper. Without that, there's only separation. So how do things change? God's got to do it, right? God's got to change us from the inside out. He has to do a work in our heart and life, and he does that when his gospel is proclaimed. He does that when his gospel is preached corporately, right? When his gospel is shared in private through you but especially corporately the spirit of god works through the preached gospel of god to change the heart and life of the hearer so that they can worship him so true worshipers worship in spirit after they're changed from the inside out they also worship in truth god's people have to get equipped with the truth in order to worship god properly that's what's going on with this woman at the well. Look back at verse 22. I want you to notice how politically incorrect Jesus is here in this statement. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. We live in a very sensitive time, right, where if your beliefs, your beliefs are fine as long as they don't say that other beliefs are wrong, right? We have to be tolerant of that, and we, well, we're told to be, we're not to be, right, according to God's word. We're to stand on the truth of his word and, and combat lies. But, but we, we live in this time. Can you imagine that, that 
how someone might respond if that statement were to be made today. If you had someone who was sincerely, uh, it was sincere in what they believed, and you just said, hey, what you say and the way you worship is, is wrong. It's not right. How would they respond? Well, who are you to say, right? Who are you to say that the way, the way I worship and what I believe is wrong, it's true to me? It's right for me? I mean, when I, when I worship, it, it feels like worship. I'm sincere. I get goosebumps. I get teary-eyed. So it feels real to me. Who are you to question my experience? Have you ever had that said to you? Times we have that said to us. Times we can be guilty of being driven too much by what we feel. And it even counters what is actually true. We truly think what we're doing is right just based upon feeling. But Jesus is saying here in verse 22 that if your worship is not based on truth, it doesn't matter what you feel. You're not truly worshiping. You're not. I've met some very sincere religious people who claim to have the inside track of what life's all about and what's going on and who God truly is. But, but after having conversation with them, I realize that their view of God is unbiblical. They're like the person Jesus describes in verse 22. They worship what they do not know, and their worship is not true worship. We have to tell people that. We have to get equipped as well in the truth, don't we, in order to worship God the way we're called to worship Him. Our worship has to be based on the truth. That means that this time is very important, isn't it? Because this is the time when we get instructed in the truth. Men's and women's Bible study is times when you get instructed in the truth. Small group ministries is when you get instructed in the truth. If our worship is based on truth, it's important that at times we get quiet and listen and get instructed on how we are to worship Him. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 3, Solomon says this. He says, To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, but a fool's voice with many words. Several times in this passage alone, Solomon talks about the importance of worshiping God by being quiet, by being attentive. He speaks of worshiping God with an open heart and a closed mouth. And the reason why is because worship is to be based upon the truth. We've got to get instructed in truth first. Oftentimes we, we enter into Bible study settings, different settings, and we just start talking, you know? We fill the time with our own words. But he's saying here, at times we got to get quiet, we got to listen. We got to get instructed in the truth to be a true worshiper of God. Many think worship is all about me singing, shouting praise to God, saying what I believe. Worship has more to do with what I say and my actions than anything else. God says no. He says, no, true God-honoring worship 
takes place when our hearts are open, our mouths are closed. Worship, listen to this, is just as much about what God says to us and the way he deals with us through his word as it is about what we say to him. There are many of you here this morning worshiping God right now at this very moment. You know why? Because you're attentive, your Bibles are open, pens in hand, your, your hearts are, are open and ready to receive and apply God's message so that you can go live it out in the world. That's worship. That's worship. Worship is based on truth. So you see why it's important that we gather believers to study God's Word, that we spend that time delving into God's Word, praying for one another, praying how we can apply God's word. That's so very important because to be a true worshiper, a worshiper that honors God, we have to be established. We have to be equipped with the truth. Let me end with this. I hope you see from this passage and sermon this morning that what we do here on Sunday morning is a, a vital part of your growth in godliness. It is. It is. My prayer for you is that, that you would truly value our time together in this way, that, that you would see this service as a beneficial part of your life and your family's life, and that you would commit to, to be here on a regular basis so that you can be better equipped to worship God because that's what we were created to do. What better way to spend your time than to get equipped to do what you were created to do? Right? Maybe you're here this morning, you're like the woman at the well. You've sought out all kinds of ways to be satisfied in this life, but have come up empty time and time again. Maybe, maybe you can really relate to her this morning. Not in the adulterous relationship, but but in just seeking happiness apart from God. Listen, you coming up empty there? I promise you, you will. Jesus invites you through his word, like he does the woman at the well, to drink of the living water, to come to him, satisfy this thirst that you have for happiness, for purpose, for fulfillment, and for joy. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christ says, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. If you're restless this morning, if you have this thirst for lasting satisfaction and happiness in this life, I invite you this morning to place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because get this, He and He alone is able to grant lasting satisfaction to a restless and thirsty soul. Let's pray.